0: Thank you for listening to Truth In Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. A lot of Bible verses uh, this lesson. Uh, It's um, uh, lots of stuff here. And so hopefully I'll be efficient. I was pleased that last week worked out okay in terms of getting through everything. So we're, um, we're going to uh, jump in and talk about somebody uh, to get started, a, a, a church, uh, churchman, evangelical uh, guy that uh, was pretty important in England and uh, around the same time Spurgeon was. So let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we do have thank you for so much we thank you for great weather for yesterday for our church-wide event and i pray that it was a blessing uh, to those who who uh, don't know you personally and maybe uh, we pray that this event and things like this would bear fruit and we know that we're we're reaching lord but uh, with the help of your spirit um, we can we can see fruit and we pray that you'd use us mightily pray that even today that we would uh, have minds that uh, would receive your truth that we would depend on you because we know that uh, spiritual battles are happening all the time and that we deal with temptation, we deal with uh, uh, the, the lust of our flesh. We pray that you'd help us. We pray that we'd lean on you, that we'd go to you continually, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So um, I have, one of the things I've been doing lately is reading more biographies and not um, I'm sort of hyper, um, you know. Re- my daughter Rebecca says she has ADD, and I'm not going to dispute that. But um, I suppose if she does, then I do too. Um, I, my I, my attention is always, you know, bouncing around. But so I try to. I read short biographies sometimes. But I, J. C. Ryle is someone that uh, some of the people that have been here a while are familiar with. He wrote a book on holiness that's. Uh, a uh, pretty well-known and we used in one of our small groups. Um, he, he was an, uh, an Anglican, which very unusual to be, uh, to be solidly evangelical at a time when the Church of England was uh, going in the wrong direction was unusual. Uh, he was born into a, a, a well-to-do family. His father owned a bank, and, but they weren't particularly religious. Um, he said, you know, we maybe went to church, but he said there was no true religion in their home. Um, but he was, uh, he was a good athlete. He was a big guy uh, at a time when I did a little research. Because I remember going to the, um, in uh, Fremont, I think. Is it Fremont or Foster? I think Fremont where they have the Rutherford B. Hayes Museum or Library in Fremont. Yeah. And so, and, they, and I thought, wow, they showed his tux from his inauguration. And I thought he's short, you know, and the lady said, Well, the average height of a man back then was like 5'6". So he was a typical, typical height, you know, 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, I think he might have been 5'5". And I guess you just expect the president to be big, right, especially in our generation. The it's remarkable how the average height of a man has, has, has gone up significantly just in the last 150 years. But he was 6'3 and a half, which made him a really big guy back then. You think 6'3 is big in our generation? You can you imagine what it's like if the average dude is 5'5", 5'6", 5'7"? He was a big guy, but he was, he was a good athlete. He became captain of the cricket team, and I thought that was interesting about this is that he said being, I think he, he learned more about, the, uh, about dealing with people in sports than he did in the classroom. He said that uh, uh, it taught him a a lot about leadership and that he actually, he said, um, I believe it gave me a power of commanding, managing, organizing, and directing, seeing through men's capacities and using every man in the post to which he is best suited, bearing and forbearing, keeping men around me in good temper, which I have found of infinite use. So what he learned as a captain of the cricket team, he he used in ministry as well. Uh, He went to Oxford. He was a very good student. But he said he thoroughly disliked Oxford. He didn't like the fact that people were uh, boasting about money and status. Um, He said he had no true religion. Uh, He said he never said his prayers for the time from age 7 all the way to age 21. But then he had a change uh, uh, in his life. Around age 21, um, he was sick. and He decided to to pray and and read the Bible. And then there was a... uh, a small church uh, started in his town, and he happened to hear the preaching from Ephesians 2. Um, uh, "For By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. That it's a gift of God, otherwise we would boast. And, um, and somehow scripture worked in his life. It reminded me, my friend Carl Wilson is, is here from Chicago. We went to the Ohio State play yesterday uh, in Columbus, And we heard some uh, uh, what you call corner preachers, you know, just uh, standing on the corner because there's thousands, there's 100,000 people there, right, plus. And and what made me think about that, Carl, was uh, yesterday um, he was just reading, one of the guys was just reading scripture. And I thought about the idea of scripture not returning void. So I think it's probably, even though you, you, you think they're probably not bearing much fruit, Bunch of people going to a football game, and somebody saying, "You know, repent. You must be saved." The reality of reading the Bible is probably not a bad thing, right? Maybe God's word. Maybe maybe somebody was walking by, and maybe that that scripture spoke to them. Well, it certainly spoke to Ryle, and he um, he worked in his father's bank for three and a half years. He was probably going to be uh, work in politics. You may hear the expression if you watch an English show, MP. Which is a member of Parliament, and so like we have representatives, they have MPs, um, and so he had that. You have to be have money behind you to be an MP, and he did. His father owned a bank, but um, and he had just become a, a Christian, and in and in June of 41, 1841, his father lost everything, and he said, "If I had not been a Christian at that time, I don't know that I would have committed suicide." He said. The, the plans of his life were broken up at age 25. No money, no politics. Um, and he reluctantly accepted a ministry position in the church. He said, I never had any particular desire to become a clergyman. Um, but he saw no other course open to him. And interesting how God uh, takes his takes places. He, um, you get the idea of how hard some of these pastors worked. He prepared two written sermons each Sunday, spoke extemporaneously on Wednesday and Thursday, visited 60 families each week, and during an outbreak of scarlet fever, he went home to home and like would force people to drink beef broth and probably saved a lot of lives. Um, we talked last week about in small group about um, how fear, right, fear can prevent you from having a good ministry. Obviously, if he was afraid, of the scarlet fever, he never would have done that, right? He wouldn't have gone into people's homes like that. Uh, but ultimately, Ryle trusted in the sovereignty of God. What I, what I like, it's a long quote, and what I like uh, to highlight here is, here's a guy who was privileged, came from you know life of privilege, lost it all, and he looks back and said, you know what? I wouldn't have changed a thing. God is in control. God did this for a reason, brought me here, here's where I am, and, you know, he said, you know, if this hadn't happened, I probably would have been in Parliament. He would have never been a clergyman, would have never preached, never written. He wrote so many books. He was, he was the, one of the most influential churchmen of his day. He, he and Spurgeon were probably the two pillars of, really, of English evangelicalism in the 1800s. Um, he worked in various small towns. He worked for a long time. Um, it seems that so many of these people that I researched, they that death is a part of their life. Um, he he married in the first year at this church. He was appointed, and his wife died after the birth of their first child. Um, his next wife was sick during most of their ten ten year marriage, and he raised their three boys pretty much by himself. Um, but he was probably evangelicalism's best known and most respected writer um, th- through the mid-late 1800s, just after Spurgeon. Um, this guy worked a long time. He was, he was getting old, but he, did, he, had, he had a lot of energy. Um, he worked 36 years in rural par- uh, parishes, and then he was called to be the first bishop of Liverpool, so he went from serving parishes of you know several hundred to a city of over 700,000, an urban city that had lots of problems. Uh, During his time, uh, him overseeing Liverpool, uh, they built 42 new churches. Isn't that crazy? 42 new churches. The number of clergy increased by 146. Um, Spurgeon called him an evangelical champion. Um, So why did I talk about Ryle? He has a lot to say. Um, about spiritual warfare in his writings, and so I thought he had some really uh, uh, useful things to say. And so I'm going to refer to a couple of things he've said through time. But I want to talk now, jump into the topic. That's my historical theology part. I'd like to talk about the nature of spiritual warfare. Um, I suppose that we don't take spiritual warfare seriously since the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was a period they also called the Age of Reason, and the Enlightenment was the period when our country was founded. So we're talking late 1600s through the 1700s even into the early 1800s was a period called the Enlightenment. And this is where people got pretty like thought hey I understand things. Science, math, philosophy, medicine, um, we're pretty smart. Man started to get a, create, develop a pretty high opinion of himself. And um, I think since the Enlightenment, Western culture has grown increasingly close to the supernatural. It's like, well, that's not possible, I don't understand it, so it can't exist. A prevalent worldview called naturalism, which is prevalent today, sees everything as having natural properties and causes. So if we can't see it or explain it, then it must not exist. Um, an example of a, of a common viewpoint of a naturalist, a famous, I, I googled famous naturalist, right? And Nikola Tesla, who's an inventor, is one of those. And here's a remark, and you can imagine how um, this, I like this picture because it, first of all, it's like, wow, what's happening? But um, I also think that it's typical of the enlightenment of man being the center, not God. But he says this, and I don't agree with it, of course. He says, science is opposed to theological science because science is founded on fact. So the presumption by naturalists such as Tesla, uh, people in the 1800s, early 1900s, was that science is based on fact and religion isn't, which we think is false, of course. Um, But we can't we can't get away from the fact that naturalism influences our culture. I, I honestly think if we were sitting in church and an angel could fly across the room, people could take pictures on their phones, we could tell everybody all about it, and nobody would believe it. Even though we have video esti- uh, evidence, testimony, the whole they would think, everyone would think we are all kooks, that, we made, that the videos were all photoshopped or whatever, that everything was fake, no one would believe it. Am I right? No one would believe it, no one. And I think that's, that's where our culture is. I think many of us are inclined to, to deny a world, that a world a certain world exists that where God is in control and somehow there's this other place where devils and his demons are our enemies. People just don't buy it. And so I, I would say that of course, needless to say that naturalism is in direct conflict with God's Word. We must take the apostles' warning at face value when Paul says in, in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. From the beginning, there's been spiritual warfare, right from the get-go, right? And this ongoing conflict was confirmed by God. After what happened when, when you know, God met, you know, met up with Eve, right, and the serpent. You know, what did he say? This is gonna be ongoing conflict. So right from the, right from the beginning, our first, the first family, spiritual warfare is, is a reality. Uh, and it's, so what I think we should do is, is have the attitude from the outset, especially as we consider today's topic, that um, conflict with the evil one should be expected. Expect, cl- expect, um, spiritual warfare, expect the conflict. It's extensive. And you know, spiritual warfare, not only is it extensive, and I say that in the notes, but it's not limited to just fighting Satan and his demons. I hope you're catching this. This is important. Um, this is um, a great quote by Ryle, and I have several of them. And I, I think we should read it carefully. There is one war which is a positive duty to carry on. It's a battle which we ought to be always fighting. And it's a battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can't be at peace with these. Um, this is vital. And so I, what I think as I studied this, a not so careful reading of Ephesians 6.12, the idea that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, uh, might give the impression that all of our struggles are with Satan. Like the devil made me do it, kind of thing. And I, I think, and that this is the verse I'm talking about. And I have to say, for years, I, when I read this verse, I was under the impression that Paul was saying that we don't wrestle against man, we wrestle against Satan and his evil forces. But what I didn't do is I didn't look at this, I think, in a, in a more broad s- s- sense. Um, our struggle is not just with the agents of evil, but Paul says our struggle is with spiritual wickedness and the darkness of this world. So it's not just that we're wrestling with these spiritual demons, right, and Satan himself, but just with spiritual darkness in general. The idea that um, uh, we have... This, this is another good quote. The corruption of the world gives way to the kingdom of the devil, for he could not reside in a pure and upright creature of God. But we're fighting not just Satan and his forces, but we're also fighting our own sinfulness, our own nature, the, the, the spiritual darkness that is unbelief. So I think when Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, what he's saying is my, my wrestling isn't with you or with you or with you. It's not with our fellow man. It's with Satan, those spiritual forces that are working against us, and our own flesh. And we're, working against, we're fighting unbelief in our own hearts and the hearts of the world, our culture around us. Um, so by darkness, Calvin says, unbelief and ignorance of God. We're fighting that in our culture and even in amongst ourselves. And so if you remember um, that quote back from Ryle, he says, this is what I, what, what I take away from this, our spiritual warfare isn't just the devil, right? It's not against just the devil. It's against the world, our flesh, and the devil. It's almost like a three-pronged, and I think he's, I think he's spot on here. Um, not all sin is from Satan and his demons. Um, we have sinful passions that are common to all men. Um, the sin of Adam has corrupted even our desires and our inclinations." So we're when we say that man is corrupt and that we're sinful, you know, that happens since the fall. That's part of our, our spiritual battle. Our spiritual battle is, battle is the fact that we have this, this flesh. Scripture is plain about our condition. We are all sinners. We all fall short. Um, This is part of what I think we need to consider when we think about spiritual warfare. Our spiritual warfare is an ever-present battle with our flesh. Um, Romans 7 is really great uh, about this topic. Uh, Paul, Paul talks about several principles here. And one of them, he says, look, I know that evil is present all the time. It's right next to me. And he says, "I understand that there's this sense that I want to do good, but evil's right next to me. It's an ongoing spiritual battle. And there is, thankfully, we have where we can be prepared. But I'm talking—that's where I'm moving toward. Right? I'm talking about the problem. We'll get to the solution. Um, but um, certainly, I don't want to under I don't want us, don't want us to forget that there are demonic influences contributing to and intensifying." our sinful tendencies. So I thought one thing I could do, I could easily just talk about Roman, or Ephesians 6, the armor of God, and a lot of you are familiar with that passage and maybe you've even studied it, and maybe you've even heard sermons on it, and I wanted to try to go a little different angle because I could certainly, it'd be easy to preach on that or teach on that, but I wanted to, I wanted to, to do some FAQs, so to speak. Um, so I'm, I'm going to deal with a few common questions about spiritual warfare. The first question is, can a christian be demon possessed the short answer is no however however you might say well wait a second there's plenty of examples in scripture of people who are demon possessed and i put some of those you know references in your notes here's one right here right so people were demon possessed what i want to tell you though is is there is no example in the bible of a believer being possessed by a demon understand Christians who have the Holy Spirit in them and if you're a Christian you do Paul says so in Romans 6 and Romans 8 if you're a believer you're possessed by the Holy Spirit that you can't be possessed by a demon we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit so there's no room for the Holy Spirit and a demon to be in the same house together and Jesus teaches about that if a person, if demon-possessed, and a person's will would be dominated by the evil spirit, having no, no room, no power left to do right and obey God. As Christians, we walk in the new, newness of life. Paul says in Romans 6:14, sin shall not be your master. And of course, he says again, this very well-known verse, one that's worth committing to memory, you know, is that we're a new creature in Christ. We become a new creation. Uh, Second question, should we rebuke evil spirits? I mean, Jesus did. Does that mean we should too? And here's an example of Jesus rebuking an evil spirit. But I would ask you, uh, follow that up with a question, should Jesus' experience be normative for us? I would say Jesus is both human and divine and cannot be tempted by evil. But we can be. So Jesus is in a different position than we are. We do know, as we're studying Hebrews now in small groups, he understands our temptation. He intercedes with us. That's a verse that we'll be dealing with in a couple of weeks. Um, But he understands us. He he sympathizes with us. But I think we should be careful to presume that we possess the spiritual gift of being able to distinguish spirits. And and so I would say the short answer again for should we rebuke evil spirits? Probably no. I think if you, in this verse, the reason I put this up here is that there's actually um, a, a gift of distinguishing of spirits. So apparently there's a spiritual gift, according to what the Apostle Paul says, and I'm not sure that we have that gift. We may, but I would say what we can be sure of, what we can be sure of is we can ask Jesus for help. Right? Whether we know it's a, an evil spirit or not, whether we understand it, we can be sure that we can ask Jesus for help. And so I think scripture tells us to submit to God and that offense is the best defense. I think that's what James says in this well-known verse too, is that offense is the best defense. In other words, instead of rebuking the devil, do what's right. Do what's right, and the devil will flee. Um, The clear teaching of scripture, that our weapons are not according to the flesh. Uh, We don't So I would say it's not yelling at at Satan, you know, go away, Satan. I mean, I suppose you could, but the the best defense is um, is to take up the full armor of God. And I don't see anything in there in Ephesians six when he talks about the you know the breastplate of righteousness and the 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 helmet of uh, salvation and the sword is it sword of the spirit or yeah and all that stuff. He doesn't talk. There's nothing in there about shouting at the devil. Okay, He gives us some tools, and so I would say um, uh, we should take Ryle's advice and just resolve, by the grace of God, to be an overcoming Christian. That should be our, our strategy. Uh, third question, should we blame Satan for our sin? I made that comment. So not many of you are uh, old enough to remember a comedy show um, in, the, in the 60s. Uh, late 60's I think, um, where a famous character used to say, um, the devil made me do it. And it was the kind of thing you'd even put on t-shirts, you know, the devil made me do it. It was a catchphrase a long time ago. And I would say, um, if we want someone to blame, we should just look in the mirror. We don't really need to blame Satan for our sin. Um, Though we are new creatures, uh, as Paul said, our spirit is, while our spirit may be willing, our flesh is still weak. Um, while evil forces may present challenges indeed, and there is spiritual warfare going on, no question about it, the propensity to sin is common to all men. And, and Scripture is very clear about that. So we don't need to blame Satan. I suppose we could. It's not I, I'm not saying that you that you can't. I'm just saying let's not say he's the blame for our sin. We've got plenty of blame to carry ourselves just because we carry this flesh, right? It's, um, and I, I have to admit, you might be thinking, and I, and I hope you're thinking, I know, but you might be thinking, you know, Randy, okay, we're this new creature. We got the Holy Spirit. Then how come I still have this flesh thing? How is it that there's this conflict? And the reality is we're not perfect yet. If there was no conflict then we'd be good. And in fact, we wouldn't even need to rely on God. I, God has established this economy whereby we need to go to Him every day. Every day we go to God. And as Piper calls it, like uh, likened it to a metaphor of the filling station. We need to go to the filling station every day. We can't just put gas in our car and expect it to run for a month. It will run out of gas. And, you know, our spiritual warfare is constant. Our flesh doesn't take a day off. We walk with it. And I've even asked, God, I'm a new creature. Why do I still have these sinful desires? Can you please take them from me? And it will happen. When we go to heaven, we're perfected. It will happen. But now, my job is to obey. So instead of complaining about my sinful desires, my job is, or my goal should be, to pursue goodness, to pursue righteousness, to pursue holiness, and not place blame on, oh, why did you make me that way? Which is what our flesh wants us to do, right? Why did you make me that way? It's, and we see examples of it in the scripture. So I mean, when Paul details the, uh, the believer's uh, struggle in Romans 7, um, he never blames Satan. When he talks about his struggle in Romans 7 if you if you're not familiar with Romans 7 a uh, remarkable chapter it's the second half of the chapter I'm referring to it's the end of the chapter and he confesses that the evil is within him. He says for I know that nothing good dwell, dwells in me that is my flesh. When Eve was tempted by the serpent what did she do? She tried to blame Satan, right? And then when God confronted Adam what did he do? He tried to blame Eve. And Carl and I were having this discussion last night about how men need to lead. You know, you never, you never hear the Bible say that we're carrying the sin of Eve. We're carrying the sin of Adam, right? Um, here's the, the verses I'm speaking to it. Uh, I meant to put those up there. And so, while Satan is a formidable foe, um, we have no excuse since the spirit in us is greater than all the forces of darkness. Um, and John assures us, you know, that greater that he within me. So we have enough to have victory. It's just we have to tap into it. And yes, our, our spirit is willing, our flesh is weak. That's the, ba- that's, that's the existence of a Christian. And um, that's, the spiritual weapons that God has given us, the ones I mentioned from Ephesians 6, they are sufficient. So we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. So it'd be like, um, I was thinking of trying to think of an example. God gave us the tools to to successfully fight this battle. And so it, it would be like blaming God for getting wet when he told you to carry an umbrella. If you knew it was gonna rain and you didn't carry an umbrella, You didn't bring a raincoat. And you got wet. Should you be mad? You knew it was going to rain. You know there's going to be spiritual warfare. You have to put on the full armor of God. And so God's given us a tool. So the reality is we don't want to do that. We want to satisfy our urges. But you know, God's given us help. So let's talk about why Christians can overcome the wiles of the devil. Part of Jesus' mission was to overthrow the work of Satan. Jesus had entered Jerusalem explaining to his disciples, um, telling them how the Son of Man must be died, must be delivered up and die and lifted up. And um, but the result from John, he says to his disciples in John 12, 31, is that now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This is a really long passage, but it, even if you don't get through it all, the main thing is the bottom, the last sentence. This was sort of the context. He's explaining to his disciples how he has to die, um, and, but with that, the ruler of this world would be cast out. Um, the cross was an act of judgment evicting the ruler of this world. Um, reflecting on Jesus' incarnation and death, the apostle Uh, John explains that the purpose, you know, Son of God was here to destroy the works of the devil. Um, The Apostle Paul also explained how the cross stripped the evil forces of their power. When Jesus left, you know, when Jesus was preparing to go, what did he tell the disciples? He said, I am going to send you my comforter. He actually said that it's good that I go and I've always found that remarkable. Because if he told me that, if I was one of the 12 and he says, it's good that I leave you, I would say, no, it's not. I like having you here. You do the miracle thing. I love that. Right? You calm the storm. I love that. We're hungry and you multiply bread and fishes. I dig that too. Right? So no, it's not good if you leave. But Jesus didn't lie. He said, it's good if I leave. He said, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. So they got something at Pentecost that they didn't have before, at least not in the same measure, right? And it it allowed them to have victory. It enabled them, not allowed them, it enabled them to have victory in these spiritual battles. They needed the Holy Spirit more than they needed Jesus. In fact, with Jesus, they might depend on him. Jesus, we're hungry. Can you whip up some bread? Right? There's a stone over there right? I mean, we might, with Jesus there, they couldn't blossom. I mean, look what happened before the resurrection. When he died, they scattered. They were a bunch of scared men. And then they realized when he rose from the dead, they were transformed. They went from being scared men to be willing to give their lives. Almost every one of them gave their lives. Am I right? And who does that for a hoax? Nobody. Nobody. I'm not, I mean, I'll carry on a joke for a certain amount of time, but I'm not going to die for it. Well, I just did fast forward there. Okay, let's see here. I got to put this back on. Oh, no. Got all excited and I lost my slides here. Uh, Technical difficulties. So now what do I do? Let's see if I can make this work. Oh, good. So I'm, but I'm not on that slide. Uh, Somewhere, I'm around 28, so this works. Okay, so the idea here is that Satan has no rightful authority over believers. That should should be a comforting thing to us. And in fact, I believe this is the, isn't this the last verse for small group that we read for this week? Might be. Um, So I find it interesting how stuff from small group uh, uh, connects with some of the lessons. Happens all the time. So the reality is that satan and his demons have much less power than the power of the holy spirit because all believers possess the holy spirit i said romans 6 here's a verse in romans 9 that i was romans 8 rather that i was referring to the spirit in 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 us in christians is more powerful than the devil and his demons and that's what i want to try to you know convince you of so to speak that this is true god has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power of love and discipline and so the, the Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, one of His jobs is to protect us, right? And so we, we should, that's why Jesus said, you need this Holy Spirit. If I don't go, you don't get the comforter. I need to go. You need the Spirit. Um, Luther has a, uh, a great uh, metaphor about Satan. He calls Satan a chain dog. And you think about it, I mean, if, if, if you've ever seen, if you see a ferocious dog, like a Doberman or something, or, you know, barking loud, showing his teeth, you know, drooling, and even if he's on a chain, you're kind of scared of him still, right? It's like, is the chain going to hold? I mean, I'm not going to go, if that dog is like on the end of his chain, I'm not going to go up to him like if he's right there and, and taunt him. Would you? Right, I wouldn't. But but that's what Satan's like. Luther said he can't hurt you. That chain can hold, right? You, the, it, yeah, it's 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 scary. A chain, even a chained dog is scary. But Satan is like a chained dog. You have the Holy Spirit. You have you have the gifts of the Spirit. You have you have the armor of God at your disposal. That chained dog. You have the Holy Spirit. That dog can't hurt you. He said, he said, but this chain dog may at least frighten him who would be secure and go ahead without caution, although he may not come close enough to be bitten. You know, we, and so we are supposed to, the chain dog is scary, but he can't hurt you, and we should keep that in mind. So I wanted to, as an app, you know, in terms of application, is to talk about uh, how we can have victory over Satan. And I used, um, this is a, the Ryle quote that I wanted to use, This is a great, great quote. And I mean, just really solid. One of my favorites I've ever used. And victory is the only satisfactory evidence that you have a saving religion. You know, if you're praying for help regarding a certain sin, and year after year after year after year you're praying for the same, for help for the same sin, what's going on? You should have victory. I mean, if you're praying that God will help you with something, and 20 years later, you're still praying the same prayer. I mean, in small group, I got a, there was a time where this older guy was praying like, you know, help me read my Bible more. And like, two years later, he's still praying the same prayer. What, what's up with that? You should have victory. And with this victory, then you know God's working in you. So you should expect victory and and, and hope for victory and really expect it. And he says, it's a conflict, no no question, but we should be getting better. We should be improving. We should see progress. Are you overcoming the passions, tempers, and lusts of your own heart? You should be making progress, you young men. The Internet is crazy. David made mention of it last week or two weeks ago, something about that. It's hard to 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 ignore. But you you should be making progress. You should be how is it in this matter? You must either rule or serve sin. That's what Jesus says. There is no middle course. What a great quote. And he he this is a guy who was six, three and a half. Someone called him a man of granite. You know, and he, he was, this guy, I think, practiced what he preached. And that's why everyone admired him so much it's how he could he could rise in a church that was really opposed to evangelicalism and yet somehow he was a leader they knew he was right and he and he lived it victory is the only satisfactory evidence that you have a saving religion is it possible that you're not even at war with your sin we need to be at war with our sins if we say we have no war no sin in us we're deceiving ourselves And so uh, Calvin says we cannot have peace with our sin. We must rage irreconcilable war with him who is plotting our ruin. If we care about our salvation, we should not have peace or truce with him who continually looks out for our worst interest. So are you relying on grace? that you think that there should be no fight because you know that was Romans 6 changed my life when I taught Romans here a few years back it changed me i had to how could that be a guy who's 60 years old but it did it challenged me because it was like david's talked about it people are, preachers are going grace 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 and grace is great no question about it but if all we preach is grace without responsibility, without the fact that there's a war, without the fact to say that you ought to have change, you should be repenting. Don't just, if you just go grace, 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 you're not gonna repent. You're gonna be the same you were last year, the year before, the year before, and you're gonna feel secure. And you know, they, that's, that's why they call it, uh, Presbyterians are frozen chosen. You know, like we're, well, we've got this faith, I believe, that's enough to get me in. And then we don't change. We don't change. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? Yeah, I told you about grace. Jesus died for you. Even in the previous chapter, he says he died for you when you were his enemy. But he's saying, look, just because you've been saved by grace and Jesus is going to cover your sins, are you going to keep on sinning? Just because you now have the advantage of grace? And Paul's saying, no. We're not to continue in sin. We need to repent. When Jesus healed that guy at the pool, and and he and he came back to him and, and, and found him later. What did Jesus say? He said, Stop sinning! That was the lesson. Stop sinning! And here, I used to think it was do you want to be healed? The lesson was stop sinning. So, I, I think that we, um, we resolve by grace. This is what, 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 we resolve by the grace of God to be an overcoming Christian. And he said, he, he, he makes this observation, he says, I see no, no sign of fighting in them. And that's what I see, even in myself. We have to realize this is a war. There's a war for your passions and your desires, what you spend your time on. Every time I pick up my iPad, it's a war. What am I going to do with it? You got your phones, I got my iPad, whatever. I'm not on my phone that much, I'm not on social media, but I got a really nice iPad. And so, whatever, you know, what... what to be spiritually minded, it means spending time contemplating spiritual things. So there's a war. And I, I, I think Ryle's spot on. And you, know, you think about, he wrote this you know, 140 years ago or something. It's no different. No different today, right? I hope you read this. Not only should we resolve to be an overcoming quick Christian, we should, we should expect that that should be normative for us. Uh, Edwards says, all true grace in the heart tends to holy practice in the life. So, in other words, grace should lead us to repentance. It should lead us to pursuing holiness. So, uh, what Edwards said, what I read these Puritans say, uh, it, Ryle, Spurgeon, it's like, there's this unified voice that says, if a pro- profession of conversion does not result in a holiness of life, then it's understood that perhaps regeneration never occurred. The gospel should change you. If it doesn't make you different, then it probably you probably didn't receive it. The gospel should change you. And so I could talk about the whole armor of God and lots of different things. But I'm going to talk about one thing, and that's prayer. I think you should should consider making prayer the greater work. I have a friend, in fact, a mutual friend. My friend Carl and I have another friend who lives in Atlanta. Carl lives in Chicago. My friend uh, Rick lives in Atlanta. And uh, we got together recently, and he told me about this quote by Oswald Chambers. Oh, I have this one too. So I was going to talk more about prayer, but this is a pro- quote by Luther. I forgot about this one. I, I think we should make prayer the greater work. He told me that Oswald, he was reading My Utmost Verse Highest, and how. Did I tell you this story already? Did the class? Okay, good. I, I, I told it several times. I forget who I, who I told. And he said that um, he came across this quote, and it's really challenged him. Prayer does not fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. It really challenged me and I told him how it did. I texted him. I was, I texted him in the middle, like seven o'clock at night, like a week or two later, and he said your text came at the right time. He said I was just on my way to church to get together with people to pray. He said that was confirmation that that I was doing the right thing. And so I, I just want to challenge you if you're as far as spiritual warfare is considered pray you know for myself I pray every morning I try to pray with my wife but now we're on different schedules and so it doesn't happen as much sometimes I just put my arm around her and I just pray for her but I we pray together every day in the morning now I'm trying to pray at night too I think we should try to carve out times to pray um, praying at night praying in the morning when you when you wake up in the middle of the night, where, where does your brain go? What do you think of? What, you should pray. I, the older you get, the harder it is to sleep through the night. I'm just telling you, sorry. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. I wake up a lot, two, three, four times. When I wake up, what should I do? I should probably pray. And then I'll just fall back asleep. But why not pray? You wanna be spiritually minded? You wanna win this war? have a mind that settles in prayer naturally so when paul says he prays continuously i think that's what he means when he's when he's idle he prays what where does our mind go so i'd like to challenge you It's my last thought because you get to go somewhere else after this you're going to do somebody else for six more weeks this is my last lesson i challenge you make prayer the greater work let's pray now and then we have an announcement so don't don't get to leave right away father in heaven um We're so thankful that we can come to you in prayer and that you listen, that you care, that you desire to work through our prayers. I I think that we sometimes pray and we just check it it off the list. You know, we check the box. Yep, prayed today. But I think in our hearts that we don't make prayer the greater work. We make prayer as part of the work. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd you'd, uh, challenge us to have a right attitude about prayer, make us spiritually minded, uh, that we might, in times of idleness, that we might go to you with thanksgiving, praise. Teach us how to pray completely and how to make it the greater work. We thank you, God. Prepare our hearts for worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is Truth to Live By.